Coming up, we take a look at the Outer Space Treaty, 50 years after its creation. Look at the Outer Space Treaty as creating outer space as a national park. And predicting crime to prevent it. What crimes have occurred in the past? Where did they occur? And when did they occur? That's the only information that we use. Plus, enhancing the wisdom of the crowd. This is The Nature Podcast for January the 26th, 2017. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. Fifty years ago this week, the Outer Space Treaty was opened for signatures. Adam's been taking a look at how the treaty has evolved and its origins in the Cold War space race. October the 4th, 1957, and the world's press announces the miracle of the age. The Russians had successfully launched the first satellite ever to circle the Earth, and Sputnik hurtles its way into space to make a date with history that heralds the dawn of a new era. We're now living in that new era, heralded by Sputnik some 60 years ago. As the space race between America and the USSR developed, it quickly became clear that the international community needed to agree on what could and could not be done as part of humanity's endeavours to explore outer space. And so, 10 years after Sputnik and just two years before the first moon landing, the Outer Space Treaty was opened for signatures. That time was very much affected by the Cold War and the race for the moon. This is Niklas Hedman, chief of the Committee, Policy and Legal Affairs section at the United Nations Office for Outer Space Affairs. As a result uh, of the two major superpowers at that time and the geopolitical context, this treaty is, of course, a compromise. Having said that, actually this treaty is putting down the minimum legal requirements for the entire state community to be able to, uh, to do space business in the future, so it's not anarchy in outer space. To avoid space anarchy, the treaty specifies that exploration and use of outer space should be carried out for the benefit and interest of all countries, and that space should be the province of mankind. But a lot has changed in the last 50 years. There are two, I would say, really main changes over those years, and that is the technological and scientific advancement in space affairs. The other factor is, of course, you have far more states using space tools and also other actors. We can see only in the last 10 years that really a push from, from various companies to, to do space business. So with all the developments of the last half century... Is the space treaty still relevant? It is a limited tool that was designed for a different era. This is Michael Listener. He's a space lawyer. It's a lot more mundane than it really sounds. Michael reckons applying this decades-old treaty to our modern era is a bit of a stretch. We're trying to interpret it to fit all the new realities of technology and activities that it's really getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and it's starting to the point of actually exploding. One activity that Michael fears may explode the treaty is a new form of space exploration. Space exploration that has a very different motivation than the missions of the 1950s and 60s. Our tiny planet sits in a vast sea of resources, including millions of asteroids. The same rocks that could fall from our skies also contain everything we could ever need. It's time someone seized the opportunity. Deep Space Industries. 
This is audio from a promotional video for the company Deep Space Industries. And yes, they're really hoping to one day mine asteroids. What's more, in 2015 the United States passed legislation which would allow exploitation of these resources. But while Deep Space Industries are adamant that this is in line with the Outer Space Treaty, Michael Listener's not quite so convinced. Look at the Outer Space Treaty as creating outer space as a national park. Like a national park, you can go to outer space, you can visit it, you can use the water to drink. But what you can't do is you can't go there and start cutting down trees and or going out there mining minerals and selling them for profit. So outer space is just the same way. You can go there freely, but the idea is it doesn't allow you to actually turn it into something for a profit. But if a country does overstep the bounds of the outer space treaty, the consequences aren't necessarily too dramatic. It's a scorn of the international community. It's basically the UN could make a big could make a big uh, tizzy of it, but there are really no penalties for quote violating international law, except for political ramifications. As our relationship with space evolves, should our international agreements evolve too? Nicholas Hedman explains that there's no clear agreement in the international community as to whether the treaty still applies to our current space endeavours. I mean, there are states that advocate, indeed, yes, it does, because it's so general that it actually can be adapted to the changes. Others say that, no, it is outdated because so much has happened that the treaty needs to be amended. In 1967, nobody could have known that countries today would be having legal debates about asteroid mining. And today, nobody can predict what the next 50 years may bring. But to Michael, we're already reaching a point where the treaty may be holding us back from exploring space as fully as possible. We're getting to a point technologically where we want to do asteroid mining and and space resource mining, where we want to colonize and create settlements. But the Outer Space Treaty is really binding us. Consider the Outer Space Treaty like a big down comforter. It's been around so long and we've wrapped it, we've wrapped ourselves around it so long that we're really afraid to get out of the comforter and move forward. That was Michael Listener, founder of Space Law and Policy Solutions based in New Hampshire in the US. Before him, you heard from Niklas Hedman at the United Nations Office for Outer Space Affairs in Vienna, Austria. Still to come in the research highlights, ants are the masters of walking backwards and electric cars aren't pollution-free. But before that, Noah Baker headed into downtown London to seek some wisdom from a crowd. I would say 101. 243. 36. 57. Uh, 120. 100. <laughs> the wisdom of the crowd refers That's Drajan Prelek from MIT in the United States. The question in this case, how many tea bags are in a jar? How many tea bags? Um, 52. Probably, yeah, how many 50 tea? Um, I'm going to say 50. Maybe about 70, I'd say, maybe. 150? 63. Granted, these answers are pretty varied, but the idea is that if you ask enough people, then the average answer will be the correct one. The crowd as a whole is wiser than the average individual. But this technique doesn't always work. It falls down when you have two kinds of information. Some information that everybody knows more or less, and then you have information that's available only to a subset. And then 
the average opinion can be hugely imbalanced. This can also be thought of as a common misconception. For example, can you tell me what the capital of New York State is? New York State in the US. New York. Uh, is it Washington? Uh, New York City. New York City. New York City? <laughs> I'm assuming it's New York. <laughs> Manhattan? No. Perhaps reasonably, the majority of people I asked assume that New York City is the capital of New York State. But in fact, it's the much lesser known... Oh, Albany? So this is what's called an unwise crowd. And unwise crowds can give inaccurate answers to questions. Not very helpful. It's probably I was going to say, Manhattan, yeah. I haven't got a clue. Oh my God, this isn't being filmed. <laughs> How ignorant are we? So how do you improve this technique? Let's take the New York question again, but phrase it slightly differently. Is New York City the capital of New York State? In the traditional wisdom of crowds uh, system, you would simply ask people for their opinion, yes or no. And what we, we take this one step further is we ask the same people, the same panel, the same crowd, also to predict what the crowd itself, how the crowd will vote. So they have to uh, offer a prediction in percent terms, what percent of the people will say, uh, yes, New York is the capital, and what percent will say it is not the capital. Scientists can use this percentage like a pass mark for the first question. For example, if the question was, is the sky blue?, you can bet that everyone would say yes, and they'd predict that 100% of others would know that too. In this case, the pass mark, 100%, is very high, but everyone will guess the right answer, and so the pass mark is reached. This is because the sky being blue is common knowledge. But in the case of the New York question, is New York City the capital of New York State, things might be a bit different. Most people will say that New York City is the capital of New York State, because it seems logical. They'll also expect that, say, 90% of others will agree with them, because they think it's common knowledge. The pass mark is again set very high, at 90%. But unlike the blue sky question, that pass mark won't be reached, because the actual capital of New York State isn't New York, it's Albany. What the crowd thinks is common knowledge is in fact a common misconception. In cases like this, where the crowd is choosing between two answers, Drajan can look at the pass mark and... If it doesn't meet it, then the other answer is correct. When, when the, for binary questions, it's very, very simple. Essentially, the crowd thinks it knows something, which in fact it doesn't know in practice, which hints that there's actually a common misconception. So the answer is the other one. But does it work? So it's been quite successful, and we tried it in many different domains. And usually, uh, you know, it cuts down errors by about 20, 30, 40 percent. Uh, in theory, it should be infallible. <laughs> That's uh, uh, too much to hope for, but it's, it's a robust improvement. Of course, it's not infallible. I asked people in downtown London about US geography, and perhaps unsurprisingly, they didn't necessarily know the answer. But what if you were to ask people in New York State, where arguably this specialist knowledge would be a whole lot less specialist? Yes, that's, that's spot on. And in fact, I would uh, be hesitant in using the method to overturn a ex very, very strong consensus. So for example, if in New York State, 95% of the people know the answer, uh, I, I would not overturn a very strong majority like that because it tends to get unstable at these extremes. And what about questions with more than two answers? Well, Drajan argues that this approach will still work there. Yes, yes. What, what you have to do then is you have to run what's essentially a round-robin tournament. You know, every, every answer plays against every other answer. 
and you decide the winner and the, the correct answer is the one that uh, sits on top of this uh, tournament just like in a football championship. Drajan suggested that this kind of approach could be interesting if applied to political polling, which has had a bit of a bumpy time of late. Although it is trickier with political forecasting as there's no right answer, just predictions. Drajan also defended the current political polling methods. You're really trying to improve an instrument that's already pretty good, you know, uh, the polls didn't get it right, but they came pretty close. So you're really trying to reduce an error that's already small. While the maths may get more complicated for multiple choice questions, ultimately, the basis of this algorithm is a very simple bit of logic. It's a syllogism that would have been familiar to people 2,000 years ago, I think. So in that sense, you can leverage high technology, but the ideas are not, uh, do not require anything that wasn't known you know, to Aristotle. But sometimes, scientists just like to take the long way round. You know, the older I get, the more surprised I am that things that are just lying around the corner that we don't notice. My colleagues and I arrived at this uh, uh, through a mathematical route that's, that was pretty complicated. But uh, in the end, uh, uh, we said, oh, there's good news and bad news. The good news, there's a simple theory, a simple explanation. The bad news is there's a simple explanation <laughs> because you don't need the mathematics. So... Uh, it happens, it happens. I think knowledge blinds us to what is just, uh, you know, sitting there in front of our eyes. That was Drajen Prelek from MIT in the States, speaking with Noah Baker. Thanks to the crowd around King's Cross Station for taking part in our little surveys. You can read more about Drajen's new algorithm over at nature.com nature. Stay tuned to hear how police are trying to predict crime and the problems that they might run into while doing it. Now, though, it's the short, snappy research highlights read by Curry Locke. Electric cars are promoted for their positive impact on the environment. But the story is not that simple, according to a study by economists in the United States. They looked at air pollution from motor vehicles by region in the U.S., they found significant variation in the benefits of electric cars across the country. For example, in the western part, where a sizable amount of electricity comes from clean energy sources, electric vehicles produce less air pollution than gas-powered cars. But in the Midwest, electric cars actually produce more air pollution because electricity there is generated mostly by coal-fired power plants. The U.S. government pays a subsidy to people who buy electric cars but the researchers say that this should account for regional variation in environmental impact. You can find out more in the journal American Economic Review. When ants get lucky and manage to capture a large piece of food, they have to walk backwards to drag that big item behind them. How do they find their way home when walking backwards? To figure this out, researchers studied a species of desert ant in the field they found that ants that walk forwards adjusted their course by looking at the surrounding scenery. But backwards-moving ants stopped occasionally, peeked forward, and then corrected their direction. This shows that the insects were able to translate their forwards view into an internal compass bearing, allowing them to keep their sense of direction, even when moving backwards. Ants are probably using at least two different brain regions for this complex navigational behavior. You can find the study in the journal Current Biology.
the classic trope of many a cop show is the car chase. By its nature, a chase always makes it look as if the police are trying to catch up to the bad guys. But several forces have started trying to get ahead by predicting what crimes will happen when. Security dream or problematic policing? Kerry takes a closer look. For most PhD students, winding up in a police car would not count as an achievement. But Aaron Shapiro's day with the St Louis County Police was a real highlight for him. You know, it was very interesting to to ride through the town of Ferguson with a police officer in the front seat of his car. Ferguson probably sounds familiar. It's the suburb of St Louis where, in 2014, black teenager Michael Brown was shot by a white police officer. Relations between the black community and the police force hit the rocks. More than a year later, in December 2015... It was still very much on the police department's minds... Um, They felt as if they were just then coming out of that string of events, the media attention and the protesters. But Shapiro wasn't there to ask the officers about Michael Brown. He was there because he wanted to learn about a new way St Louis County was trying to deploy its police officers to fight crime. It's called predictive policing, and the idea is to use data on past crime to forecast future crime. Now, crime mapping is something police departments have always done. Think back to the 1950s and 60s and the television images of a map on a police department's wall and they have uh, thumbtacks where crimes took place and maybe uh, string connecting the dots. That was all computerised in the 1990s, but the maps were a bit vague. They would tell you what crimes took place over the past couple of weeks or so in a neighbourhood. Then it was over to officers to interpret this information. The newer systems for predictive policing use finer-grained geospatial data to make predictions themselves. Here's Jeff Brantingham at UCLA. He's the creator of a system called PredPol. The big difference here is in the ability to uh, process much larger amounts of data, so you can look back more than just a week or two weeks' worth of data, and you can use more sophisticated algorithmic methods to detect what's going on in those volumes of data. So instead of a whole neighbourhood or a census tract, predictive policing goes all the way down to... um, a street corner, and it can make a fine-grained prediction about, you know, when a crime would take place within that grid cell and also potentially what kind of crime would take place there. To achieve their predictions, most systems use information on what crime was committed when and where. Some systems add in extra data on local bars, bus stops, schools, weather and sports schedules. Here's Brantingham again. The data that we use is really quite simple. It's historical records of what crimes have occurred in the past, where did they occur, and when did they occur. That's the only information that we use. This is information that police departments, most, the majority of police departments around the planet, collect on a routine basis. Predpol and other systems with names like HunchLab, they're generating a lot of buzz. 20 out of 50 of the largest police forces in the US have used a predictive policing system, with another 10 or so exploring options, according to a survey done in 2016 by the tech consultant Upturn. Aaron Shapiro watched the officers in St. Louis County as they got used to their new hunch lab system. When the officer would look at the, the, the predictions that the software was giving him, he was a bit surprised at some of the places, um, and he wasn't surprised at some of the other places. We went by some, some alleyways that the officer would not have parked his car in. But despite that novelty, critics warn that the systems are biased and opaque and could dent civil rights. This week in Nature, Aaron Shapiro points out a few concerns in a comment piece. First, he says the systems are only as good as the data feeding into them. The data are already biased and reflect biases in 
um, the, the practices of policing in terms of where officers are patrolling um, and which crimes get labeled as crimes because in a wealthier neighborhood, someone might be more likely to get away with a, a very minor infraction, whereas in a, in a low-income neighborhood, uh, they might be stricter. The concern is that that is reflected in the crime data upon which these algorithms are trained. Plus, the way the systems actually work isn't very transparent. Some, like Predpol, have worked with researchers to publish their algorithms in research papers. But much of the detail remains murky from the point of view of the public. Brantingham's response is that these systems are not functioning alone. No matter what technology you put in the field, right, that never replaces the responsibility of police to police constitutionally. Uh, Predictive policing really doesn't change that in any fundamental way. But Brantingham does acknowledge that these systems can be pretty hard to test. If a police car is stationed on a street corner and a crime doesn't happen, how do you prove that your algorithm prevented the crime? You know, just as you would um, think twice about, uh, you know, taking a pharmaceutical that didn't have any clinical trials associated with it, you you would also worry about, um, you know, putting something into uh, public policy practice without having scientific evidence to back it up in that way. And then it was really uh, in 2010 and 11 that we uh, decided to put into the field a randomized controlled trial to answer exactly that question. The trial, run in Los Angeles and in Kent, England, suggested that patrols based on predictive data led to a 7.4% drop in crime volume. But there's another question mark over these systems. Will some people become unfair targets of suspicion? Most systems don't include information on individuals, but that doesn't mean that peoply features are completely absent. Race, for example, correlates strongly with poverty in the US. Poverty is geographically concentrated. And so, says Aaron... There's no way to control for race playing a role in geographic predictions. Back to St Louis County, who are putting HunchLab into practice in an area where race is never far from people's minds. For now, Aaron thinks that there are policing challenges in some communities that no algorithm will solve. I was travelling with a white officer. He lives in a rural county away from St. Louis County. St. Louis County is um, it's a suburb of St. Louis, but it's predominantly black and low income. And this guy lives in a middle class, majority white community. That contrast, you know, struck me as one of the things that the software just can't solve. That was Aaron Shapiro, a doctoral candidate at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. Read Aaron's comment piece for free at nature.com slash news. You also heard from Jeff Brantingham, crime researcher at UCLA and creator of Predpol. Time now for this week's news chat and Richard Van Norden joins us in the studio. Hi, Richard. Hi, Adam. Now, of course, the news on everyone's mind is kind of Trump-themed, but we're going to take a break from that here and return to that in back chat. Instead, let's look at a question that's slightly more, I guess, internal to the scientific community, which is peer review. There's been a debate recently about how private peer review should be. The idea that peer review should be confidential has been one of the norms of scientific journals for a few decades. Uh, Recently, some journals have started to opt for open peer review. Sometimes the name of the person who reviewed a paper is revealed. Sometimes the entire text of the review is revealed. Some journals offer this and many don't. Now, one scientist is really turning up the heat on one publisher who doesn't offer open review in this case. He wants to publish the text of his review online, and he insists that he never signed any bit of paper saying he couldn't. But the publisher is uh, trying to disagree, so we've got a challenge going on 
between a scientist uh, and a journal. So does the publisher actually specify somewhere that he can't do this? And if they do, then what's the problem? This is the key question. So the scientist here is John Tennant, and he'd reviewed a paleontology paper. He got the author's permission to post up the text of his review on a website called Publons, where reviewers can get credit for the work they've done. But Publon said, oh, hang on a minute, uh, Elsevier, which is the publisher, doesn't let you do this. And Tennant says, uh, I didn't sign a confidentiality agreement. But Elsevier says, well, on our general guidelines website, it does say that reviewers shouldn't share information about the review with anyone without permission from the author and the editors. Tennant is a bit tricky on this point. He says, well, OK, you didn't point me to this website. And uh, in fact, he's posted on his own website a little note that says, I charge £10,000 for peer reviewing. Uh, And he (laughs) says, well, you know, suppose I were to review for someone and not point them to my website. Does this mean I can get money off them? He's clearly pushing this quite hard and clearly cares quite a lot about it. But what are the actual benefits of having peer review more open? Well, the idea is that it gets people to realise that science isn't just about, you know, the sacrament of the final paper, that a lot of work and revisions have gone into making the final paper what it was. That's what people who advocate for open peer review want. And the question in this particular dispute is not so much around that uh, sort of general philosophical idea uh, as it is about was the scientist ever really told that reviews were confidential? And the idea that norms are changing so fast that journals can't really rely on some sort of vague, everybody knows this concept. It says so on our website somewhere. So is this situation with Elsevier journals, is that quite typical? I mean, how does it affect, say, picking a journal at random, Nature? Well, Nature, for example, uh, only goes with confidential peer review, uh, although Nature Communications, uh, one of the other journals in the Nature stable, they've been trialling open review with the author and and editor and uh, reviewer want it. I suppose this question of uh, how open peer review is, is only really a question if there is a peer review in the first place. And there's something of a move to to not have a paper peer reviewed. Yeah, this is uh, another interesting um, idea in, in publishing. A geneticist this time said uh, he, he put up a preprint paper, which is a paper that hasn't been peer reviewed, on a server called BioArchive. And he said... I left a comment indicating that I regard this paper as my final version. I'm not going to publish. I'm raising my hands in a quote mark saying I'm not going to publish this. I'm never going to submit it to a journal. I put it online and there it is and it's done. Um, There's no review there, so that's it. So I suppose that's kind of redefining the preprint server as just the server. It's not not going to be printed. Exactly. You know, who's not to say that um, people couldn't come along and provide reviews if they wanted to? afterwards on that server. So he, this geneticist, Graham Cooper at the University of California, Davis, he wants to kind of experiment with how preprints are perceived by researchers, because I think some scientists perceive them as very provisional, subject to change, not fully worked out ideas because, you know, they haven't been formally peer reviewed. But he's saying, well, sometimes that's just it. So interestingly, other biologists replied to Cooper and said, yeah, hey, you know, we do this already. Well, perhaps this is a slightly old-fashioned opinion. I'm beginning to think that my perspective on peer review might be a bit outdated. But 
isn't peer review meant to uphold a particular quality standard? Well, the thing is that some very bad papers can get published even though they've passed peer review. It really depends on the standard of peer review at journals. And as we were just discussing, a lot of that is confidential. So, so long as you're aware that a preprint has not been peer reviewed, it might be quite good, it might be bad. If you really want to know, you probably either need to be a specialist in the field or you need to look around and see what other people are saying about it. So extra caution needed, perhaps, when you're looking at a non-peer-reviewed paper. But there's no reason why it couldn't be perfectly good and just as interesting as a peer-reviewed paper. We talk sometimes at Nature and on the podcast about the pressures on younger scientists. And one of those pressures is the pressure to publish. Is that pressure relieved by publishing on a preprint archive? Would funding bodies be happy with a paper that's only on a preprint archive? The problem really is that publishing in a peer-reviewed journal is also a measure of prestige. And if you're a young researcher, you need that prestige, you need that track record to advance your career. And saying that I published a great paper on a preprint server, at the moment, doesn't give you the kind of prestige that hiring committees are looking for. And it's interesting that Graham Coote was the only author on this paper, and he said... If he had done this with other students, he probably would have published it in a journal because they need that journal track record. Graham Coop had one other point about whether, you know, in a future it's viable that everyone just uh, puts out their work as preprints and leaves them there, which is that at least under the current system, every paper gets some kind of peer review because it's organised. If you are going to rely on scientists leaving comments or reviews underneath preprint papers you're just not going to get enough unless that activity is itself organised. If someone rounds up three scientists for every paper on bioarchive and says, can you leave a comment, please? Then we would have organised post-publication peer review. But at the moment, a few papers get an enormous number of comments because they're very interesting or they're very controversial. But most papers on preprint servers or online get nothing. Thank you, Richard. For more on those stories, it's nature.com forward slash news. And to stay up to date, follow Nature News on Twitter, at Nature News, or follow the Nature Multimedia team, at Nature Podcast. This week on YouTube, we've got a video about an AI that can detect skin cancer. YouTube.com forward slash Nature Video channel for that. As you might have heard, Backchat is back for 2017, and the first episode will be arriving very shortly on your RSS feed. We'll have the latest on Trump's science-related appointments. Plus, if you've ever wondered whether to call your giant science project a framework or a roadmap, we have the answer for you. Well, I can't promise the answer, in fact, but we did discuss the semantics. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. Listener.